Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. It began as a boring night in the quiet apartment that Patricia Hurst shared with her fiancé, Stephen Weed. The two had eaten dinner together, cleaned up the dishes, and were settling in for yet another less-than-thrilling evening, watching television on the couch. But then came a knock on the apartment door. Weed opened it to a young woman looking concerned and apologetic. She'd been backing up her car, she explained, and she thinks she hit another car that must belong to someone in this unit. Patricia was annoyed. For starters, someone hitting their car sucked, and also she was wearing nothing but a robe, her panties, and a pair of fuzzy slippers. She really didn't want to deal with this right now. Suddenly, two men armed with big guns burst through the door and ordered Steve and Patricia to the ground. Steve protested and was slammed in the head with an M1 carbine. Though Patricia cowered on the ground as ordered, she stayed surprisingly calm. Her boyfriend, not so much. His screams drew the attention of a neighbor who came from his nearby apartment to check out the ruckus. The next thing the neighbor knew, he too was on the ground, a gun in his face. Get your face on the floor, the intruders ordered. Then they started asking, where's the safe? It was an odd request of college students living in a modest apartment, and predictably there was no safe. But the demand naturally made Steve assume that the couple was being robbed. Take anything you want, he screamed. And then he bolted from the apartment, abandoning Patricia and escaping out a side door. Patricia would never see him again, not because he died that night, but because the intruders weren't interested in her nerdy, condescending fiancé, they had come specifically for Patricia, the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, a man of immense wealth who had built the nation's largest newspaper chain and whose incredible influence forever changed journalism in America. Stephen Weed had screamed, take anything you want. And so they did. They took Patricia Hearst. When Patricia was kidnapped February 4th, 1974, from her Berkeley, California apartment, the story riveted the world. It wasn't about what happened. It was about to whom. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. The victim is Patricia Hurst, the daughter of newspaper executive Randolph Hurst and a granddaughter of the legendary William Randolph Hurst. Hurst is still a well-known name today, but nothing like it was in 1974. In the best modern-day analog I can imagine is Jeff Bezos, though William Randolph Hearst arguably had more political influence, even though he didn't have quite as much money. 
His net worth when he was alive reached over $3 billion, which translates to about $30 billion in today's money. Bezos could spend that much in an afternoon and still have nearly $150 billion left to spare. But Hearst was basically the prototypical magnate. He inherited his first newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, in 1887, and then, over the next several decades, steadily built a company that at its peak had 30 newspapers under its umbrella. Even today, the company still runs 24 newspapers nationwide, employing some 3,000 people. In the early 1900s, Hearst also crossed over into politics overtly. He was twice elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and waged failed campaigns for New York City mayor, New York governor, and even, in 1904, for U.S. president. While early in his career, he was known as a progressive. His editorial pages often promoted the positions held by labor unions, for example. Hearst became more conservative after World War I, eventually becoming a prominent enemy of former President Franklin D. Roosevelt. So influential and famous was Hearst that he was the main inspiration for Orson Welles' Charles Foster Kane character in the classic epic Citizen Kane about a newspaper magnate turned penny-ante politician who never finds happiness in life despite his staggering wealth. It should be no surprise that Hearst hated the film. William Randolph Hearst died in 1951, leaving most to assume that his five sons inherited his crazy wealth. And they did, kind of. The elder Hearst gave them jobs in his company, and they certainly had plenty of means to live on, but they weren't simply willed the Hearst fortune. William Randolph Hearst didn't think too highly of his kids' money management skills, so his fortune went into a trust that was managed by a board that he dictated would include non-family members. His son, Randolph Apperson Hearst, had at one point managed the San Francisco Examiner, but in 1973 shifted over to serve as chairman of the Hearst board. It's this background that made it such huge news when one of Randolph's five children was kidnapped. Patricia Hurst is 19 and a sophomore at Berkeley. She and her fiancé were in her apartment in this building near the campus last night when a woman and two armed men burst in, beat and bound her fiancé and a neighbor, dragged Patricia down the stairs, threw her into the trunk of a car, and drove off, firing a volley of shots around the neighborhood as they left. The neighbors were terrified. Well, I heard a scream, and then I heard what were gunshots. And I looked out the window, and all I saw were the sparks of the gun going off, and I hit the floor. Did you hear the the girl who was being taken out say anything? Well, I heard her pleading, please no, not me, words to that effect. If you know anything about this story, you're probably used to hearing about Patty Hurst, not Patricia. That's because her parents referred to her by her nickname when speaking to her through reporters. It's my understanding she prefers Patricia, so that's what I'll call her. Patricia Hurst had, of course, led a privileged, sheltered life. It's tough to get around that when your family's worth billions. But in some ways, she was also very much an average girl. She wasn't a genius. She knew nothing of the family's finances. 
She assumed, like many non-feminists of the era, that her role largely was to get married and have kids. That's why, at age 19, she was already living with Stephen Weed, who'd been one of her high school teachers. The setup would be illegal in several states today, but Patricia and Weed became a couple when she was 16 and he was 23. Ew. Once it was clear Patricia had been abducted, people assumed she'd be held for ransom. I mean, we've seen that in other cases. The Jenny Piper case in Minnesota, which we covered earlier in the series, was only two years prior, in 1972. I mean, surely that had to have given the hearse hope. Piper's kidnappers had demanded money, and once they got it, Ginny was released unharmed. Patricia was especially close with her father, who decided straight away that he would do whatever it took to get his daughter back. Her fiancé said the same. Witnesses said the abductors fired guns as they fled. Stephen Weed was badly beaten, but he said he would not testify against the suspects if Patty Hearst were released unharmed. Days went by with no word. It was an agonizing wait for Patricia's loved ones. Then, finally, a tape was released to the media. Mom, Dad, I'm okay. It was Patricia's voice. She explained that she'd been taken hostage by a group calling themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA. I'm, I had a few scrapes and stuff, but um, they've washed them up and they're getting okay and I caught a cold but they're giving me pills for it and so I'm not being starved or beaten or unnecessarily frightened um I've heard some press reports and so I know that Steve and all the neighbors are okay and that no one was really hurt Patricia's parents were indescribably relieved. Speaking to their daughter through reporters, her mother said, We love you, Patty, and we're all praying for you. I'm sorry I'm crying, but I'm I'm happy you're safe. Safe was a relative term, of course. Not much was known about the SLA at the time, but the bit that was known was terrifying. The SLA had recently taken credit for the horrific assassination of Dr. Marcus Foster, who was superintendent of the Oakland Unified School District in Oakland, California. He had gotten the post in 1970, and it marked the first time a large city school district had a black superintendent. Foster was largely popular in the community, but the self-described field general of the SLA, a prison escapee named Donald DeFries, decided Foster was capitulating too much to the fascist institution known as the American educational system. So one night in November 1973, he and two SLA comrades ambushed Foster and a colleague as they left a meeting. The colleague survived, but Foster was shot multiple times with cyanide-laced bullets. The SLA quickly put out a communique taking credit for the murder. The SLA is the people's army and we fight in their interests. The SLA will never compromise. Now to our sisters and brothers in prison. Courage and faith to our two captured soldiers. Greetings to all oppressed people. May we connect. It would seem DeFries expected kudos from other revolutionary groups of the time. 
And there were a bunch in this era, like the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground, but he had killed the wrong target for that. Foster was well-liked, well-respected. He was a Black man doing good work in an historic position. His slaying was universally condemned. So DeFries changed hacks. He told his SLA brothers and sisters that they would try to avoid killing people and instead aim to get the attention of the man, that's capital T, capital M, by kidnapping someone important. They made a list of potential targets, bank presidents, corporate executives, the head of the California Department of Corrections. But then one of them spotted a newspaper brief in December 1973 that was like the heavens parting. On page 26 of the San Francisco Examiner, the headline read, Miss Hurst, Stephen Weed are engaged. That simple announcement put Patricia in the SLA's crosshairs. Like a planned operation, a quick burst into the scene, the abduction of the girl, the beating of the uh, fiancé and the next-door neighbor, and left the scene just as quick as that. When Patricia's statement to her parents, Mom, Dad, I'm okay, was released, so too was a message from DeFries, who had adopted the nom de guerre, Sinkyu. Greetings to the people and fellow comrade, brothers and sisters. My name is Sin Q, and to my comrades, I am known as Sin. I am a black man and a representative of black people. I hold the rank of General Field Marshal in the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And I am therefore quite willing to carry out the execution of your daughter to save the life of starving men, women, and children of every race. DeFries had been born in Cleveland, Ohio, as the oldest of eight children. He reportedly grew up with an abusive father, whom he said broke both of his arms as punishment three different times. He dropped out of school his freshman year of high school and ran away, falling in with a rough crowd. In his teens and early 20s, DeFries bounced from one jail or prison to another. During one prison stint, he was inspired to create a political group called Unicite that was joined by other inmates, including two who would later play big roles in the SLA, Willie Wolfe and Russ Little. In March 1973, DeFries managed to escape from prison, and Unicite members Wolfe and Little, who had already been released, took him in and introduced him to a young woman named Patricia Soltisik. She and DeFries became lovers and together founded the SLA, writing tortured, idealistic literature that often ended with the motto, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. More SLA members were recruited and they all adopted fake names to try and conceal their identities while acting on their political beliefs. Soltisik went by the sobriquet Ms. Moon. DeFries's name, Sinkyu, had belonged to a West African man who'd led a revolt on the Spanish slave ship La Amistad. In that first message to Patricia Hearst's parents after her kidnapping, DeFries made the SLA's demand. Before any form of negotiation for the release of the subject prisoner be initiated, that an action of good faith be shown on the part of the Hearst family. This gesture is to be in the form of food to the needy and the unemployed 
People expected that the kidnappers would demand money, but everyone assumed it would be money for themselves. DeFries caught everyone off guard by demanding instead that the Hirsch family pay to feed the hungry. I mean, it might sound fairly noble, but in reality, it was kind of ridiculous. And the scale that DeFries demanded was enormous. It would have cost them $400 million and been a logistical nightmare to boot. I mean, even if the logistics could have been worked out, Randy Hearst actually didn't have that kind of money. I mean, sure, his family was stinking rich, but that money was handled by a board, not by Hearst himself. Still, Hearst was determined to meet whatever demands he had to to get his daughter back. He talked the board into freeing up a bit of money, and he added a big chunk of his own, too. He worked with nonprofit agencies to try and come up with a reasonable way to distribute baskets of food to people. In the end, though, things didn't work out as either side had hoped. The SLA's ransom demand was for free food, and the Hearst family and the Hearst Corporation bought $2 million worth. But the food giveaway plan was badly managed. The SLA said in a later tape, the giveaway was a sham. Patricia, who was kept in a closet in a small apartment that served as SLA's home base, was allowed to watch some news coverage of her kidnapping. And she never paid attention to her family's finances, so she didn't know what to think when she saw her dad on TV saying, hey, two million bucks is all I've got. Meanwhile, she had DeFreeze and other SLA members in her ear telling her that her dad was lying, that he just wasn't willing to put up more money. What self-centered bourgeois pieces of garbage, they said. Your parents care more about money than they do about you. With another victim or at another time, these words might not have registered with Patricia, but she was in a precarious position in life. She was at a crossroads. She had been with the same man for three years and was living a life that seemed more like a middle-aged housewife than a 19-year-old college student. Plus, She wasn't as enthusiastic about getting married as the engagement announcement might have implied. It's more something she felt she was expected to do than something she wanted to do. And then there was Weed's behavior the night of her abduction. I mean, he fled without her. For all he knew at the time, he could have been leaving her to die there. He said, take anything you want. And they took Patricia. Was that really the type of husband she wanted? Day after day, Patricia was kept in the closet, but slowly, the SLA members who guarded her started talking in friendly ways. One SLA member, whose codename was Jelena, was especially chatty. Jelena talked about how amazing DeFreeze was, though she called him CQ. Patricia only ever heard their codenames. Jelena was about Patricia's age and was incredibly pretty and bubbly, and Patricia was impressed by her dedication to the SLA cause. This is Jelena's voice. Greetings to the people and comrades, sisters and brothers. My name is Jelena, and I am a general in the Symbionese Liberation Army. Her real name was Angela DeAngelis when she enrolled in Indiana University, Bloomington. She hardly came across as a menacing, dangerous kidnapper. She was gregarious and engaging, a former cheerleader and theater student. She made a point to check on Patricia, to ask her how she was feeling, and to try to make her as comfortable as possible. 
She promised that Patricia wouldn't be hurt. And she talked. She talked about her upbringing, about her teamster father, her stints in student leadership groups. She talked about her marriage in undergraduate school, which changed her name to Angela Atwood, though that part she didn't say out loud. Patricia knew her only as Jelena. She talked, too, about her political awakening at Indiana U. It was there that she had helped fellow theater student and future Oscar winner Kevin Klein run a guerrilla theater group in town. With other actors, the group would host performances calling for revolutionary change. They demonstrated against the Vietnam War and capitalism. She talked about all of this, and Patricia listened. None of what Jelena said sounded crazy to her. Soon, the way Patricia talked about her kidnappers seemed to change in tone. I'm with a combat unit that's armed with automatic weapons. There's no way that I will be released until they let me go. These people aren't just a bunch of nuts. They've been really honest with me, but... Um, they're perfectly willing to die for what they're doing. Patricia's captors gave her books to read, like Blood in My Eye, written in prison by activist George Jackson and published after prison guards killed him in 1971 during an escape attempt. In one message to her parents, Patricia cites that book as having opened her eyes. I'm starting to understand what he means when he talks about fascism in America, she said. Patricia began talking to her captors as well about how her mom was a bourgeois drunkard and her dad a capitalist pig. And the more she repudiated where she had come from, the more freedom her captors gave her. DeFries told her he had no intention of killing her, that her kidnapping had been to make a statement and shake things up. In fact, he said, the real threat to your life isn't us at all. It's the police and the FBI. If they track the group down and raid the apartment, he said, there's going to be a shootout, and none of us will get out alive. With that in mind, DeFries handed Patricia a gun, unloaded, but still. He had her practice military-style drills so that she could defend herself against law enforcement if they burst through the door. And day after day, they practiced. They talked, they ate together. It started to seem like Patricia was one of them. And then, one day, it became official. Asked by her so-called comrades if she wanted to go home or join the SLA, she said definitively, I want to join you. Later, some would say they tried talking her out of it, that she was adamant in her choice. Patricia would say that she never really had a choice, that even if they told her she could go home if she wanted, she knew she really couldn't. It was either join or die. Where the truth lies has been the subject of endless debate ever since. Whatever the case, Patricia needed a code name. She chose Tanya in honor of a woman who had fought along Che Guevara in the 1960s. With that name, she was officially a revolutionary. The Symbionese Liberation Army was low on cash, so they planned to rob a bank. 
and they decided that this bank robbery would be the perfect time to unveil their latest recruit. They chose the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco. They chose that bank because it had surveillance cameras. They wanted Patricia Hearst front and center. They planned everything meticulously. Then, on April 15th, 1974, two months after the kidnapping, they burst into the bank with assault rifles and ordered all the workers and customers onto the ground. Patricia was not only positioned in front of a camera the entire time, but she actually screamed, This is Tanya, Patricia Hurst. The whole robbery lasted about two minutes. Eyewitnesses say that as bank robberies go, this one was extremely well planned. Two people were shot during the robbery, and the SLA gang got away with more than $10,000. The robbery was filmed by the bank's automatic cameras. The FBI said the girl in the wig with the automatic rifle was Patricia Hurst. Photos of Patricia captured by the surveillance cameras shocked the world. FBI agents say the girl identified as Patty Hurst stood right about here, her right hand either on the trigger of the gun or near her pocket. Just in case there was any doubt about her participation, Patricia then released a tape. On April 15th, my comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. I was positioned so that I could hold customers and bank personnel who were on the floor. My gun was loaded, and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Careful examination of the photographs, which were published, clearly shows this is true. Our action of April 15th forced the corporate state to help finance the revolution. Then things got personal. Patricia referred to Stephen Weed, the man she'd lived with just months earlier, as her ex-fiancé. I don't care if I ever see him again. During the last few months, Stephen has shown himself to be a sexist, ageist pig. Not that this was a sudden change from the way he always was. For those people who still believe that I'm brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death. The only way to get free of America's fascist dictatorship was by fighting, she said. Not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the people's army. Patria o muerte, venceremos. When word reached the hearse, they were as shocked as they were heartbroken. According to Patricia, their daughter was gone, and in her place was a stranger named Tanya. After Patricia Hearst helped rob the Hibernia Bank in April 1974, reporters asked her father what he made of it. He seemed shell-shocked. We've just heard the tape, and I haven't had a chance to really look at it and, and study it. Uh, we'll do everything we can in our power to get Patty back. For months, the news coverage about Patricia's abduction had been sympathetic toward her, if not her family. The family, in fact, endured a lot of criticism for trying to cooperate with the SLA's demands. California Governor Ronald Reagan thought they were buckling in the face of adversity. 
But now, public sentiment was turning against Patricia, too. And to outsiders, she had aligned herself with terrorists and murderers. These were the people who killed the beloved Oakland school superintendent. Two people were shot in that Hibernia bank robbery. That they survived was pure luck. For Patricia, there was no turning back, and she was in too deep. Soon, her face was splashed across wanted posters right next to the faces of her comrades. The group ditched their latest apartment and moved several times. DeFries was always on edge that they were minutes away from being discovered, so they never planted roots. And he was right to worry. On May 17, 1974, a series of almost serendipitous events led authorities to the crew in Los Angeles. It began when Patricia joined a married couple in the SLA named Bill and Emily Harris. The two had been among her captors, but she was now aligned with them and considered them comrades. It was a complicated relationship. The SLA generally had a free love approach, so most members had at one point or another slept with each other, and Patricia at times slept with Bill, but she didn't like the guy much. He was a lot to bear. Nonetheless, Patricia joined the Harrises on some errands. It was a way to get out of the cramped house where they were all staying while also picking up supplies that the crew as a whole might need. Patricia was too high-profile to go into any of the stores, so she would wait out in a van they were driving that was filled with guns and ammunition. When Bill and Emily went into a sporting goods store, Patricia again stayed in the vehicle, thinking they'd be back in just minutes. What she didn't know is that inside the store, Bill had made a crucial error. While he and Emily picked out cold-weather sleeping gear, as requested by DeFries, Bill saw a bandolier for sale. That's a shoulder belt to hold ammunition. Bill wanted it. But he worried that buying something like that might draw attention to the couple whose faces weren't as well known as Patricia's. They were still featured on plenty of wanted posters, too. So Bill slipped the bandolier into his pants and he and Emily headed to the cash register. Mistake number one. Someone saw him through a security mirror and stopped him. Because he had been caught shoplifting, managers were threatening to call the police and ask to pat Bill down. He had a gun on him, though, so Bill ran. That was mistake number two. Several employees and customers gave chase, and Bill burst through the store doors across the street from where Patricia was starting to get impatient. She saw them struggling and, at that moment, had a decision to make. She could turn herself in, leave them behind... Or she could try and help them. She opted to help, firing an automatic weapon toward the crowd. As bullets whizzed by, Bill and Emily managed to free themselves. They ran to join Patricia, and then, after their getaway, decided they needed to dump the van they were driving. They eventually spotted another van being advertised for sale outside of a home in Linwood, California. Emily knocked on the door of the house, An 18-year-old Tom Matthews answered. She asked about the van and said she wanted to take it on a test drive. Tom was an affable, goofy-looking kid who said, sure, but I should go with you, you know, just to be safe. Emily agreed and drove away, picking up Bill and Patricia nearby. 
and informing Tom that he was being kidnapped. To be sure, this wasn't as traumatic for Tom as Patricia's kidnapping had been. Bill told Tom straight away that if he didn't do anything weird, he wouldn't be hurt, and then Bill pointed to Patricia. Tom was gobsmacked. He later said, I knew who Tanya was. Before we went one city block, I said, man, my friends are never going to believe this. That kind of set the tone for the evening. They didn't know it, but Bill, Patricia, and Emily had already made mistake number three. The van they had ditched was stolen, so it couldn't be traced to them. But they left a parking ticket on the dashboard. That ticket bore the address of where it was issued, which was right outside of the SLA's most recent home. The handful of SLA members there managed to flee before cops arrived, but they made their own mistake of parking their similar-looking vans in an alley near a new house they more or less commandeered. It wasn't long before cops spotted the vehicles and figured out which home they were in. The massive gunfire exploded a half a block away from that house. When that gun battle erupted, we moved down the street. There were sharpshooters and FBI. They raced to positions just around the corner from the house, about 100 feet away. The air shook with gunfire, and police realized what they were up against. The shootout was broadcast live on televisions, first across Los Angeles and then across the country. The ability to broadcast live was thanks to new technology, so this was really the first time breaking news in America was covered in real time, uncensored, for the entire country to see. Let's see if we couldn't still get this picture, but from a little better location, huh? Well, I don't know if it's a good idea to interview somebody right now. As this was happening, Bill, Emily, and Patricia were settling into a hotel room near Disneyland, hoping to get lost in the crowds of tourists. They had spent the night with Tom Matthews as their hostage, and then let him go in the morning, as they'd promised. Now they were watching a fatal police assault on the friends whose location they'd given away. This was a scene so chaotic that it wasn't even clear at first how many people had been killed. Five suspected members of the Symbionese Liberation Army are dead following the bloodiest and most massive gun battle in the history of Los Angeles. Hundreds of police and FBI agents surrounded this small house on East 54th Street in the south central area of the city. Shortly before 6 p.m., gunfire erupted. For more than an hour, thousands of rounds of automatic weapons and small gunfire were exchanged between police and the suspects inside the house. The bodies were burned beyond recognition and awaited final positive identification following coroner's autopsies. It was an incredible, almost unbelievable ending to the most intensive manhunt of recent years. And yet, it was viewed as it happened by millions watching on national television. After the gunfire subsided and the flames put out, Reporters on the scene were left to wonder. But a big question mark still hangs over South Central Los Angeles at this very moment. 
A question as large and perhaps as tragic as any on the West Coast in the last 103 days. Is the body of Patty Hearst among the five found early tonight? Patricia's horrified family prepared for the worst. At Hillsborough, California, the Randolph Hearst family has apparently given in to the inevitable fear. A family spokesman said tonight that the feeling inside the Hearst home is that it's all over for Patty. Eventually, the coroner identified the dead as Donald DeFreeze, Nancy Ling Perry, Willie Wolf, Camilla Hall, Patricia Soltisick, and Angela Atwood. After the world learned that she was not among the dead, a new question arose. Where the hell was Patricia Hearst? The murder of her captors turned comrades seemed to genuinely upset Patricia Hearst. This is Tanya. I want to talk about the way I knew our six murdered comrades because the fascist pig media has, of course, been painting a typically distorted picture of these beautiful sisters and brothers. She delivered a chilling eulogy praising each of the slain. She called Willie Wolf, with whom she had been coupled, the gentlest, most beautiful man she'd ever known. This address, played on radios worldwide, was the last time anyone would hear from Patricia for more than a year. She, Bill, and Emily sought and got protection from student radicals in the San Francisco Bay Area. Perpetually low on cash, in April 1975, they attempted to recreate the success they'd had a year prior, robbing the Hibernia Bank. This time, the target was Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California. As with Hibernia, someone got shot. Unlike Hibernia, that someone died. Myrna Lee Opsal, a 42-year-old woman, went to the bank to deposit her church's collection money from over the weekend. Emily Harris apparently mishandled her gun, fatally shooting the mother of four. After the robbery, the crew went underground again. The FBI, which had been handling the case from the start since kidnapping falls under its jurisdiction, was more and more humiliated with each month that passed. The agency was already taking hits because its longtime leader, J. Edgar Hoover, had died in 1972 and his unethical and illegal methods were starting to come to light. And now, they'd not only failed to find Patricia Hearst, but they'd lost her psychologically to her kidnappers. Still, agents kept working their sources and following up on tips. As often happens with high-profile cases, Patricia was spotted in just about every state, hundreds of times, but none of those spottings panned out. Eventually, though, FBI agents got a tip that someone who might be sympathetic to the SLA had a job painting houses. It took some more shoe-leather detective work to find the guy, but when they did... They also found Patricia. The FBI says Patty Hearst was picked up today in San Francisco. The Hearst newspaper heiress has been missing for 19 months. Once Patricia was reunited with her family, she quickly renounced the urban guerrilla lifestyle she had embraced for nearly two years. She said she'd been brainwashed. In truth, the SLA was sort of a ragtag outfit that certainly didn't set out to brainwash her. But by controlling what news she got, by convincing her that her family and police were putting her in more danger than they were, by involving her in a bank robbery that made her one of America's most wanted fugitives, 
she said that she was indeed brainwashed. I was gone. I was so far gone, I had no clue how bad it was. But brainwashed or not, she had broken the law. She was charged in the Hibernia bank robbery, a highly publicized trial that pitted expert psychiatrists and psychologists against each other followed. In 1976, Patricia was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. But in part because Patricia had luckily never hurt anyone when she robbed banks and sprayed gunfire, sympathy slowly shifted back her way. Her about face and re-embracing her family seemed to convince many that her time as an outlaw truly wasn't a conscious choice. After serving 22 months, her sentence was commuted by President Jimmy Carter. And in 2001, President Bill Clinton pardoned her on his way out of office. She moved on, she later said, though life was never quite the same. It's something that that affects you so deeply that in a way you can never really trust people again. You know that you have to, and you know that not everybody is like this. But it changes your perception of people for the rest of your life. And in a way, it's mm. sad to lose that kind of innocence. But on another way, you, you get a strength from it. As for her surviving captors, Bill and Emily Harris were sentenced to eight years for kidnapping. Then in 2002, after they'd long left their radical ways behind, the Harrises and two other SLA accomplices were charged in the Carmichael bank robbery, the one in which Myrna Opsal was killed. They pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and were sentenced to between six and eight more years in prison. Once released, they, like Patricia Hearst, returned to the bourgeois lifestyles they had once violently denounced. To research this story, I read Jeffrey Tubin's American Heiress, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping Crimes and Trial of Patty Hearst. It was well-researched, but I gotta say I didn't agree with all of the conclusions he reached, and that's a big reason I didn't use sound from him in this episode. I also dug up and watched tons of contemporary news footage and read the onslaught of newspaper coverage the case produced. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>